Earlier this year, the word looked on in shock as a consortium of the world's biggest football clubs, including six of England's richest teams, attempted an aggressive and ill-advised coup of the world's most popular sport. The proposed European Super League gave all football fans a deep sense of unease. What had been known for decades, but perhaps not truly acknowledged until now, was that football at the highest level had become little more than a plaything for the planet's wealthiest men. With that has come greater and greater polarisation between the rich and the poor, a disconnect between fans and the players they adore, and a desire to maximise profits above all else. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say the proposed Super League was met by little more than a shrug in my house. In all honesty, I was happy that the cat was finally out of the bag. Take your ball and sod off, I thought. My allegiances with football have always been less about the sport and more about everything good that comes with it. The friendship, the camaraderie, the sense of unconditional inclusion. Now, it would of course be disingenuous of me to suggest that I, as a white heterosexual man in my mid-twenties, has ever had to truly deal with exclusion in any real-world sense. It would also be naive of me to suggest that football has always been a place where everyone feels welcome. Far from it. But I firmly believe that football, more so than anywhere else, has the power to enact social movements that encourage better inclusion for all. With that in mind, I introduce you to the Football Without Everyone Is Nothing series, brought to you in association with Man Markin. Every day this week, I'll be speaking to different individuals and organisations, all of whom have used football as a vehicle to improve social inclusion. As we all well know, social inclusion is a key component of improving our collective mental health. So that will be a crucial part of our focus as well. Today in episode seven, which is our final episode of the week, we'll be speaking to Chris Allen from the Ullett Road Church Rebels Football Club. If you'd like to get involved this week, you can of course find us on Twitter. Our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag football without everyone is nothing. So for the final time, I'm going to hand you over to Chris Allen and then I'll see you very briefly on the other side. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm Chris. I'm the um, club secretary of um, Ullett Road Church Rebels Football Club and we're a, we're a refugee football club based in Liverpool. We've been going since um, 2000, 2018 we were founded and um, I believe we're the first refugee football club to play competitive 11-a-side football in England. Not, not the UK because there's, there's Glasgow United in Scotland but, but in England. And you formed the team alongside uh, Reverend Phil in, in January 2018. Could you tell us sort of how, why, you know, what you decided to sort of create a refugee football team? Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was working with an organisation called Asylum Link Merseyside. And, um, you know, if you go to Asylum Link Merseyside, you walk through the doors and it, there's a throng of people there and they're kind of, it's, it's, it's probably one of the few places um, people can go and feel welcome and um, get some warmth and some food and so on. And so I was volunteering there and I came across um, lots of kind of guys with nothing nothing to do really because as, in, as someone in the asylum system in the UK, you don't have any money to do anything. You can't work, so you've got nothing to do. So I offered to take them to um, football matches. And we originally uh, began um, going to AFC Liverpool um, to watch them in the Northwest counties. And um, as a result of doing that, then um, the the lads mentioned there was many postponements, as you know, in non-league in the winter. And we, we used to go to a cafe or 
um, watch football on the, the telly in a pub or something. And um, they, they mentioned wanting their own football team. So basically it, it sprung from that. But the, the bigger reasons really relate to the kind of lives that those um, lads were, were living. Um, it's terribly, it can be terribly lonely as, as somebody in the asylum system. You know, you can make your way and, and many do on their own to this country. They can be very, very young. Um, you know, they can come as, leave their countries of origin as young as 14 and, and actually come on their own. Um, so they find themselves in, in the UK on their own. They, they can be very lonely. I've spoken to some of the lads who played for us and they, they, you know, they're kind of cooped up in, in some home office accommodation on their own during the day, nothing to do. They might go down to, to Asylum Link. And, you know, they've got a lot of, um, they've been through trauma. You know, that's one of the reasons they're here. They, they'll have had some kind of trauma, whether it's to do with war, violence, loss, torture, something like that in their countries of origin. And being on your own um, isn't a fun place to be when you, you've kind of been through those kind of traumas. And so, you know, what we, we uh, wanted to do was fundamentally give those lads something that they loved because football, as we know, is that kind of language that, that we all love and um, to give them something that would, would take them away from that really and give them something else to focus on. And so from the kind of loneliness mental health point of view, it was very, very important. But, but obviously the other thing is uh, when you arrive in the UK, you're not exactly given a warm welcome by by the government. I and mean, you are by some community groups, but not by the government. And it, and it is a hostile environment. And there are issues about belonging um, or feeling a sense of welcome uh, and belonging here. And I think if, you know, you can, you can play football with people in the asylum system. There are football projects scattered around Liverpool and people can uh, rock up and, you know, play football for half an hour, an hour or, or whatever. But what, what we wanted to do, you know, why set up a football club? Well, aside from the loneliness and mental health issues, it was something that, that those lads could have a sense of ownership of, you know, feel that it was theirs, something that they belonged to. Um, and I thought that was important really um, for, for the lads, given that they, were, they found themselves in an alien context, in an alien society, not necessarily feeling or making, being made to feel welcome, but to have that sense of belonging and so, a sense of ownership of something that was, that was in, this, in this country. And I think for us, um, Phil and I, you know, that was a reason to, to, to build a, a football club that, for the lads, really. And, um, and, and from, from our point of view as well, um, Phil and I, you know, and our, our own feelings about um, the hostile environment in the UK for, for refugees and people in the asylum system, we, we, we kind of wanted to, to resist that, really. We wanted to to refuse our cooperation with it in some way. Um, we, we wanted not to go along with it. We wanted to do something that resisted it, that something to provide a, a different kind of space. So if, if the UK as a, as a, as a, a gen, generality was, was a hostile environment, and I'm thinking about government policy here, then, you know, as a church, then the, the, the Unitarian Church on the road would provide something quite different. And so from our point of view, we were, 
we were providing a, a kind of a space that was working according to a different kind of set of rules, a different set of values. Um, and the, the, the re, you know, our reason for doing that is because basically we don't want to cooperate uh, in any way, shape or form with what the government's doing. And obviously what the government's doing in creating a hostile environment is trying to enrol us as UK citizens into that by shaping our mentalities, our understandings, our feelings about refugees. And so we become part of that hostility. And we, we certainly, we wanted to be the complete opposite to that. So to be honest, Dan, it was it's many, many reasons and um, led to the formation of a club. But I think, like I say, the key is we wanted a club, you know, not just to play football in, a, in an informal way, but a club. And, and there, were, there were good reasons for that. Yeah, I think the the sense of ownership is important. I think, as you've outlined there, Chris, and I think, you know, broader context with football, I think what we've seen over the last few months is that people do want ownership over the over football and they want to be part of something that they have a say in as well. I think that's important for people as well in terms of, as you were saying, with regards to things like loneliness and self-esteem and things like that. It's an important factor. You mm. mentioned the Unitarian Church what was the sort of association with the church? Why was that a, a sort of factor involved? Yeah, interesting. Um, I actually um, met Reverend Phil. Um, sort of, I met him at a friend's funeral. I had a friend who was a Newcastle United fan and he died. He was quite young. And I met Phil at his funeral and we had a chat. And Phil kind of said, oh, come and, you know, I have a coffee and chat in Lark Lane come along and I, I didn't go along until I had this idea of a football club and I, um, I knew Phil would be up for it from the conversations I'd had with him. He's up for these kind of things, you know, he was a, a different kind of minister really to the, the normal minister you might meet in a in a church. And so uh, I went along, spoke to Phil and he, you know, I, to be honest with you, I didn't have to say anything to convince him. I just said, do you want to start a uh, you know, football for refugees? Yeah, what do we need to do next? That was his, his response, and then we went from there, really. So the, the idea of um, the church just came, but, you know, when, when I knew I needed to set up a football club, I said, well, how do you do this? Who do you do it with? Yeah, um, infrastructure's important, isn't it? Uh, resources important, and I knew Phil would be, uh, was, a, was a, a good man to do it with, and we, we just came together, to be honest, Dan, and I'd never really had much to do with the Unitarian Church before that, but I have now, and... Um, and really, if you look at the, the history of um, church football clubs, I mean, it's, it's littered all over football, isn't it? The role of the church, even, you know, even Coons Park Rangers, you know, behind me, you know, um, origins in, in the church, really. But it's associated with that muscular Christianity. And so what it comes down to um, in terms of the, the history of church involvement was for all the best reasons, you know, what, what um, churches were trying to do was it was a, there was a kind of social control agenda really going on and it was about um, about people in positions of power controlling other people and um, shaping their conduct um, in ways that they thought were appropriate and so there was a disciplinary aspect to it you know there was a militarism to it that's certainly the case <clears throat> with Queen's Park Rangers it's the Reverend Sidney Bott was behind the creation of Queen's Park Rangers and you know there was the, um, uh, the Boys Brigade was, was a big part of that, very militarist. And what, what the Unitarians is, is it's against all of that stuff, that hierarchy, that 
authoritarianism because the Unitarians came out of the Reformation and so they were anti-authority, anti the, the kind of that kind of Catholic um, thing, really. So for, for a Unitarian church to be involved in football, it, it does it from a different point of view. And really what it's about is, um, you know, um, inclusion. Uh, it's a, there's a flat flatness to it. There's no hierarchy. It's about inclusion. It's about building community. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's just a, it's a free space in which people can, can develop really. And we, we subscribe to, to the ideas of nonviolence, you know, really it's, um, it's about building understanding between different communities, um, and through that, you know, kind of nonviolent response to the kind of situations in, we, in which we find ourselves. So our, our kind of approach to, to doing this is, is different to that historical approach that the church always took to, to football and what it, it saw in football. It saw in football a means of, of like I say, uh, disciplining people and creating a kind of disciplined environment. It's quite, it's a bit different for us, really. Yeah, it sounds, it's almost flipping it on its head to a degree, isn't it? And, 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 and doing things in a, in, a, in a complete antithesis really for what they were originally kind of doing in that space and I think yeah. much with you know much like the way that you you, you you are bringing those two things together you know the Unitarian Church and, and, and the refugees as well I think that there's such a nice kind of chemistry between those two things isn't there with regards to the requirements of the you know the space that the refugees need in this country is all yeah. those things that you talk about and you know you yeah. I've read, I was reading online, Chris, when I was putting these questions together, the, um, is it 13 part diary that, that, that's published online, um, which is about the, the, uh, the, the creation of the team and some of the players that are playing in the, in the team, which yeah. uh, it, it, it's brilliant. I'll put links on it in the bio and stuff. It's, it's really worth a read. And I read your article in When Saturday Comes as well, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, is also, which is also a really interesting read. And I think, you know, obviously the, the, the players that you that, that are playing in the team, the people that you are that you're you're involved with and, and they've all come through that, that hostile sort of environment that you've talked about with regards to the UK asylum system. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of people listening who, who maybe know or have heard of refugees, asylum seekers, you know, is is a kind of thing that they generally would hear on the news, something to do mm. with the news. Uh, or you know, some kind of political statement it's normally used, you know, that gets kind of wrapped up in but perhaps not in any detail. For people who are listening who maybe don't really understand the depth of the journeys and the difficulties that people have come through to get to the UK, could you mm. give us some kind of, maybe a bit of an idea as to the type of people that are playing in the team and the type of journeys that we've had to get here? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, um, we re I, wrote, I wrote a book about it as well, uh, Dan, called Football Without Borders. Mm. And that, that, doc, that kind of tells some of the stories in there. Um, uh, and I suppose the, the, the one I'm closest to is, is a player called Hassan, um, who's, he's, he's just turned 19, but he, he left Darfur, um, or Sudan, he left Sudan in, in, when he was 14, he left Darfur a little bit before that. Um, and the, obviously the problem for him was the, the conflict in Darfur, um, those terrible things happened in Darfur. The you know Bashir, the um, Sudanese um, president, military ruler. Um, there was a policy of Arabization uh, of Darfur, and um, so so for the black population, um, 
that essentially meant, I mean, some people have called it genocide, other people kind of question whether it fits that definition, but, but terrible things happened, whole villages tor torched, people um, massacred, and he lost um, family during the conflict in Darfur. Um, and as a result of that, um, had to leave um, Sudan. His, 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 his mom told him he'd lost his dad, um, lost family. His mom told him to, to leave Sudan because it was it was too dangerous, and it, it, it was. So when he was 14, he um, his uncle took him to uh, Libya, and um, and then he basically left him, and he, he had to make his own way from Libya. And he made uh, this is not unusual actually. He made his own way from from Libya on his own to the UK. So, you know, he, he made his way over the Mediterranean, he, he landed in Italy, he got the usual hostile uh, reception because the, the Italian border police are particularly notorious um, for this. Uh, it was locked up, managed to, to escape, made his way through Italy, um, found his way um, on his journey to, to Belgium. And I think the interesting thing about Hassan's story is that uh, he, he was found by a family um, in uh, a park in, in Brussels and he was homeless. You know, we're talking a 14 year old boy here and they, they kind of looked after him uh, for a while and he ended up playing in, um, or training with the Andelect. They knew they could see a football talent. So he ended up training with Andelect uh, in their youth setup. Um, but the problem with with um, that is you, it's, it's um, you, Belgium had a, a, a reputation for sending under the Dublin regulation for sending um, people who were in the country back to the first point at which people um, found safety in Europe, which would have meant sending it back to Italy. Yeah. Um, and if it had gone back to Italy, it would have been sent back um, to, to Sudan. So he didn't want to risk that. So he, he had to move on because um, to, to stay in Belgium risked being sent back to Italy under the Dublin regulation. So he moved on, uh, went through the, the, uh, the jungle in, um, in Calais and um, attached himself to the underside of a lorry, found his way into the UK. I've, I've seen footage of this. He's sent me, he gave me footage of this uh, a year or two ago, maybe of his journey under the lorry, um, his back was shredded when he, when he um, eventually, you know, got out from under the lorry when he was, when he was in the UK and he claimed asylum in the UK. Um, and, you know, he had to undergo, um, as a 14 year old, you know, my son's 14, 15 next month. I can't really conceive of him going through the experiences that Hassan's been through at such a young age seeing family members slaughtered, um, losing um, family members, being, having to leave your, your home, having to travel on your own, the, the, how terrifying it is to get across the Mediterranean, seeing people die on the journey, seeing people being thrown into the sea, being imprisoned in Italy, you know, um, being homeless in, in Belgium, being homeless in Calais, having to get under a, a lorry, 14 years old, I, I've told this story um, and other stories in, in, you know, before the pandemic uh, to, you know, Amnesty International, you know, had meetings and events and so on. And Hassan is, you know, I'll take him with me um, to some of these events. And 
it's very difficult to kind of hold your emotions back sometimes because, you know, we're talking about real human lives. And um, he's now in the UK on his own and it's, it is a hostile environment. And, and what, you, what we're dealing with really is a lot of unaccompanied children, a bit like Hassan. And um, you seldom hear really in the, the news, the true story of what they've fled from, the, the things they've been through, the trauma they've been through. I, I was talking to him once when I was writing the book on football without borders, I was talking to him because uh, I was writing a story in the book and he just jumped up and pulled his, his t-shirt off and showed, and showed his torso and the, the marks on his torso because he, was, he, was, um, he, he fell foul of the, uh, the secret police in Sudan and was, you know, was tortured basically, 14 years old, not uncommon. You know, we've got other players who've been through similar in Sudan and in other countries, torture, um, and have the marks to prove it. Um, but um, when he, he uh, came to the UK, I mean, funnily enough, he's got a job interview and we, we put together a job interview for Liverpool Football Club for him to be a kitchen porter. And he's got an interview with, with, with Liverpool tomorrow, so I'm, I'm going to help him do the interview tomorrow. Um, but without the football club, you know, I, I often wonder, given the um, our players uh, and the the youth of some of them, um, when you when you are accepted for refugee status in the UK, it's horrendous. You know, the Refugee Council have, have written about this, and um, they give you twenty eight days, and then they 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 give you minimal funding anyway when you're in the asylum system, hardly anything to live on, and then they say after twenty eight days, that's it, it's pulled, sort yourself out. Now, um, the amount of, of the players that were, you know, have, have helped them because of the, um, because of this situation. Um, if, if Hassan was on his own, um, I don't know how he'd get a job. You know, he's, he's got refugee status now. His, his English is developing, but he's, he, you know, he's a kid and he, he, he lacks confidence. He needs um, tutoring. He, he needs a paternal figure, really, and we've got that kind of relationship. But there's other players as well, you know, the Shering from Tibet, tortured in Tibet. Um, you know, the government tried to send him back, but he'd be shot if he went back because he's a political dissenter. They'd shoot him. And, um, you know, they tried to send him back three times and he got um, eventually accepted for asylum. You know, and, and you, you get into that, um, you know, having been through some of the things he's been through, um, I then find um, he's in the... He's in the homelessness system. So you, you go to try and get him a, a flat, no chance. Then you go to a, a bank um, and I say, you know, he needs a bank account because we've been to the universal credit and they say, you can't give him universal credit till he's got a bank account. They say, can you give him a bank account? No, he needs something with an address on it. Say, but he's homeless. This is in, the, in, in a bank, an ethical bank, by the way, that claims to be fighting homelessness. And they say, well, no, he needs something with an address on, but, but he's homeless. And so it's not just the kind of the journeys that the, the players have um, when they're coming here and what they've come from. And they've come from some pretty horrific things. We have a, gr a group of young players, many of whom have been in prison, tortured, seen family members slaughtered and all the rest of it. Uh, deeply unpleasant things that, you know, we don't truly understand. But, but you know, it's that they've gotten used to traumas when they get here because they're in the asylum system. It's, it's unwelcoming then they're thrown out of it and say, like, you know, you're on your own. And um, it's very, very difficult, really, for them to, to cope with that and um, to find the way, you know. So actually, a lot of um, 
people who 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 are accepted uh, for refugee status find themselves homeless within 28 days because quite frankly they they can't get themselves housing they can't get themselves a bank account and they can't get universal credit so they they end up on they end up homeless on the streets in hostels and all sorts of things so you know they they that, that that's a flavor of some of the lives and where they've come from and um, i mean if you think of hassan in, in sudan i mean our government turned a blind eye to what was going on in darfur they didn't want to know because they were they were more interested in cozying up to bashir because of the you know they were fighting the war on terror and um and they were getting useful information from bashir so they just turned a blind eye to what was going on in darfur and then when you have refugees turning up as a result of a conflict that you've turned a blind eye to um they, they get a hostile reception and they're, they're, they're 14 years old I'm, I'm kind of waffling a bit now but, not no not not, <laughs> not not at all chris it it, it reminds me i read a book called um <clears throat> lights in the distance um mm. by daniel trilling um mm. quite recently actually i think it was late last year i read it because mm. it the the so uh, you know as i was saying before about refugees and asylum seekers it's the type of thing that you you hear a lot about the words that you know and that you understand to yeah. what they mean but it was always the type of thing that i was it's a, it's a subject that i've always been interested in and mm. I, you know, I read that book because I just wanted to learn a little bit more about the sort of ins and outs of it. And there was there was a part in the book where they were talking about all of these countries and all these places that the refugees and asylum seekers come from. I, I cannot remember the exact sort of quote from the book, but it was something around like almost all of them, the reasons why they've had to leave our, our country, our governments, the, the decisions that have been made over the last decades have had some impact into why they've had to leave in the first place. Yeah. And they arrive at our doorstep mm. displaced because of decisions that have been made thousands of miles from where they live. Yeah. And are then turned away when they're simply asking for help. And it's it, it the, the 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 thing I remember taking from the book as much as anything else was this feeling of hopelessness almost. I feel like mm. I put too many nurses in that. But yeah. the, 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 that that hopeless feeling that you had of there is so few places for them to go. There were so few people who were willing to help. Mm. So when we were putting these episodes together, that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you because I, I, I'd come across the football team through seeing things on Twitter and, and I, I guess for, for, for the work that you're doing, Chris, and you kind of given an example of it there with linking them up with Liverpool and, and getting a um, you know a, an interview and, and, and that's obviously a big step for, mm. for people, isn't it? It's huge. What yeah. are the sort of other positive impacts that you find for the players that, that are playing as part of the of the football club? Um, you know, and and, and and you know, looking at that those kind of issues of, of feeling rejected when they turn up, what are the type of things that the, the football club is able to give them that they're maybe not able to get elsewhere? Yeah. Um well it's 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 yeah, it, it's a good question, Dan, actually, because I have to admit there were times when um, we were playing in uh, some <coughs> local leagues and there were times when I, you know, I despaired and I, I wondered whether I'd done the right thing in setting a football club up. We got a lot of hostility on the pitch, uh, and, you know, and I, I'd go and see Phil and, and I'd say, you know, <laughs> what, what have we done? I don't want to, had, the lads have had enough in their lives. Um, you know, are we, are we actually making things, uh, you know, worse or even 
and um, and then you know when I was writing the, the book and you know doing the the uh, the articles you were talking about before, um, I wanted to document what we were doing, and so I, I, I spoke to the players. And when I spoke when I spoke to the players, and it's their perspective that matters, even in the depths of my own despair about the um, <clears throat> you know the team and some of the hostility we received on the pitch. I'm wondering whether we've done the right thing. I, I, I got um, things from um, some of the players. So I've got, this is from the, the, the uh, one of our players, Sandro, right. He, he, I'll put it in his words because he, he can say better than I can what it means to be in the football team, what he gets out of it. And this is a direct quote from an interview I did with him. And, he, and Sandro says, and he was tortured um, in Eritrea, he says, when you're in the team, you're like a family. How can I say it's something, love, it's being close. You can't be friendless. If you're playing, then you'll be happy. If you're happy, then you'll be brothers. I don't have a lot of friends in Liverpool, actually. I just meet them now through the football. I didn't have close friends here. Before the club, I was lonely, staying at home. You don't go out. I know a lot of people that didn't have friends until now. They just stayed at home. The team allows us to play. Uh, you don't have uh, money when you're an asylum seeker. Uh, you're not allowed to work. It's very lonely. You don't have anything to do. I used to go to the library. I didn't read for four years when I was in prison and on my journey, so I like to read. Um, but when I get in the team, I feel comfortable. I, I feel now like I'm safe. Um, that's probably, uh, I think, and maybe I hope that's an answer to your question, Dan, mm. uh, in terms of what um, some of the lads... Uh, get out of it. This is uh, Mohammed, right? This is this is another of our players, Mohammed, and he he's talking about what it's like, what the team means to him, what he gets out of it, and he says um, it's more like a peaceful place, you know, like we come from war, pressure, but now it's okay. At least uh, I find I can play. We're living, but we still have scarred memories. We're thinking about what happened in the past when we were alone. You're out of your country and you're living alone and your family is somewhere else and some people are still suffering at home but when we have matches okay when we started talking about football or playing football we forget all of these things so it really helps our mindset it makes a big difference when you play football than when you sit at home yeah i still have thoughts and depression we keep thinking you know what we saw it's not easy to forget when we go out and training and run it it makes a difference playing football it makes you forget what happens in the past yeah, I, mean, I suppose Dan, that's that's what it that's what the, the, the club gives the lads. You know, that's what it they they feel it does for them. So their perspective matters. Um, my angst about some of the issues, I mean, you know, I mean, it's very interesting how you you have these different perspectives of, of the club and what it's doing to people. I was kind of worried the the hostility on the pitch that we were getting um, was was a negative for the players. And I worried about it, but the players will turn around and say, "No, it means all these things to us. You know, it, it means so much." And um, and I'd I'd say, "Well, what about the racism or something?" And and they go, "Ah, you know." So, which doesn't mean to say it's it's not it's it's for us it's very deeply important, but it you know it just shows you know that you can have those different perspectives and and that's what that, that's what they get out of it. The, the the hostility was was something I was I was curious about, Chris, because you know, as with anything, that, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that you, you do anything that's that's 
sort of within an, in an arena like football that is, for a lot of ways, particularly kind of amateur football, that is very kind of entrenched in the in, in the way that it's done and, and the way that it is and 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 has been basically the same for probably 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. And so I, I did an episode a while ago with um a guy called Ashley Pitter, who was one of the, the first players to play for uh, Stonewalls Football Club. And yeah. he was telling me about the abuse that, that, that he got personally and the team got when they first started playing sort of Sunday League football. In terms of the, the hostility that you received, is that regular or have you found that to be more than you expected, less than you expected? I was naive, Dan. <laughs> I think probably I, I thought it, I, I thought we would we got a lot more than I expected. Um, we've been through a couple of different leagues. The first league we were in was pretty bad. Um, you know, we had a manager, uh, Pete, who, who doesn't do overstatements and you know, when I saw Pete getting upset, I knew it was bad. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of hostility. Um, there's a lot of there was um, a lot of aggression. I think in those some of those leagues, you know, Saturday leagues, um, in the gra- grassroots in a in a city like Liverpool, it's not the only place. You know, in other places as well, there's intense there's intense competition, uh, will to win. Um, and I think sometimes some teams will stop at nothing to do that. And then when you have mixed in with that, the fact that you're you're a refugee team, it can be it can be a toxic combination as well. Um, so I, I I think yeah we had a lot of um, problems, a lot of hostility. We had people threatened on the touchline um, with physical violence, um, things like that. Yeah, it wasn't pleasant. We actually resigned um, our place in the league in, in the first season we played. We resigned our place in the league uh, because of it, to be honest, because I, I just felt um, it was unacceptable um, to, to put our lads in that firing line. I, you know, I wasn't prepared to do it. Um, so we decided, we, we made a point, we played the whole season, bar one game, the last game, we made a point, we resigned. From the league with our game to go and we then joined another league um which was a lot better um it had a different ethos was a lot better i think the people who ran the league took this fa respect thing seriously um and that that made a difference i'm not saying that what it was perfect it wasn't there were there were moments but it was nothing like the first league we were in where i think you know a lot of things stem from the um the officials who run the league and uh you know, from right from the beginning, um, <laughs> we had problems with them. Um, so, and and then what spins off that is the attitudes that are taken onto the pitch and and so on. And you know, for me, it's not about winning at all costs. Uh, you know, it's about participating in something you're doing your best and seeing seeing where that gets you. But if some of the teams that just wanted to win, uh, you know, at any cost. But but like I say that. We, Mixed in with that was 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 a lot of hostility. I think because of who we were, as well. You know, the players told me about you know the, the things that were said on the pitch. Very very difficult to kind of combat racism in grassroots football. People aren't stupid; they're not going to shout something out loud. Um, but things are said, uh, and the other thing is, it's not just the fact that things are said. Um, even when with when when they're with, within the hearing of the referees, the referees, you know, a, a lot of referees won't do anything. Like Pete said, who who was managing the team at the time, 
um he said would you would you get a bloody nose for 30 quid you know he said referees won't do it they won't they won't challenge um some of the behavior on the pitch and they won't challenge the racism because you know that they, they feel threatened themselves and so it, it can be very difficult really um to to play in those those conditions and we, we i certainly found it difficult I, I, like i say a bit naive i remember giving a class because i teach in uh, john moore's university and i gave a class to um i've got a friend who does a sociology of sport module he says will you give a, a guest lecture yeah I, I i threw something up on the wall it was um it was a it was from my diaries that I was keeping at the time. And they described in graphic detail some of the problems we'd had on the pitch, violence and, uh, and aggression and so on. And when you, when you kind of put them on the wall, even at the time it felt bad. And even when I was writing down in the diary, it felt bad. But then I hung them up on the wall and said, you know, to the students, read that and see what you think. And it just felt really, really shocking to me. Yeah um what what i'd written in the diary um and what the lads were, were being subjected to but there was um, a couple of um lads in in the class and they they were so what that's what it's like and i said well i'd been away from liverpool for 20 years you know um i played grassroots football when i was here as a kid left when i was 18 and i was away for 20 years i said it was my first I've been involved in non-league football, but it was my first taste of grassroots football since I was a kid, really. And I said, I must have been naive because I didn't really experience this when I, I was growing up playing football in Liverpool. But, um, but you know, this did take me by surprise. And they, they, they basically said, well, you know, I don't know why you're surprised. That's what it's like. So I suppose that's the, um, that was our experience, really. I suppose in a way, Chris, it kind of makes... You know the hostility and the and the abuse and all the rest of it that that comes with playing Sunday league football. It almost, to a degree, kind of demonstrates even further why the need for the the football team is there, why the need for the mm. the, the kind of camaraderie that will come with that, and the the you used the word safe before that kind of safe space for mm. for, for the lads and, and and for the players in the team. With with regards to the way that the football team has been able to bring them together and been able to give them that, bit, maybe a bit of sense of purpose or something that you know something that binds them together. Do you think football's almost unique in that sense? It, it's got like a bit of a, a, a sort of about it that's able to kind of group people together and you know that that sort of common language that we all understand football to be. Yeah, I think I think it has um, because uh, you know I mean you can go to asylum link and you've got various projects going on but nothing will resonate with people like a game of football you know and <clears throat> nothing can bring people together like it like a game of football and it, and you can do wonderful things through football so I think it it does offer a, a lot of potential and a lot of possibility um obviously the, it's not it's it's in certain situations it, it presents its challenges but um I think football offers us something that, you know, other things don't really. I mean, you know, it's it's the it's a, the global game. Everybody loves it. Everybody knows the, the if, much to my disappointment because not really a fan of the Premier League, but you know they all follow it. You know they all know it, and uh, you know it's the language we all talk about. You know everyone talks about it, and and it is the thing that knits us all together. It's the you know if you want to bring people together you where's the starting point for a conversation when you've got two strangers you know if I'm talking to um somebody in the asylum system 
um, and I've just met them. What's my first question? It's like, who do you support then? And we take it from there, you know, and um, and and that that's the the common bond that we've got. So yeah, I think football does have something um, special about it that that you know that does bring people together. And, and like I say, in the context of a football club, it does wonderful things for people in 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 pretty dire situations. It, it gives it gives our lads, um, you know, it's well, like Sandro said, uh, it's it's love, belonging, brothers, you know, these this kind of thing. I, I don't know what more you could ask for, really, uh, from something than people to feel they've got you know, a sense of community, love, brotherhood or whatever you want to call it. You know, I think that's that's really important. Yeah, I agree, Chris. And to wrap up then, in terms of, you were talking about your book, Football Beyond Borders, and Football Without Borders, sorry. And, um, you know, where can people buy the book? How can, you know, people find out a little bit more about the, about the team? And where, where do you play your home matches? Right, we're just about to enter a, a new league called the uh, Merseyside Inclusion League, which is a new thing. And it's got a lot of teams, um, you know, who are coming from mental health perspectives as well. You know, of course, as refugees, you've got a kind of Stonewall-like team, mm. LGBT kind of thing. And um, we're going to be playing in that league um, starting on the 11th of June. And we're playing at the Tiber Football Centre. I was going to say, is that, is that, is it, a, are they Friday evenings? Yeah. Like saying at the Tiber. I think yeah. someone I know is involved in, in, in that somewhere. I'll have to, I'll have to check I'm talking about the right thing. But I remember seeing that on Twitter. That yeah. was we played up there. Well, I played up there a little while ago. It's great. It's a really good, really good setup down yeah. there. It's a it's a brilliant facility, and there's a guy at Liverpool. I'm not a big fan of the football authorities, as you know, you probably gathered from reading <laughs> the diaries. But um, uh, there's people. There are some brilliant people there, and Stuart Carrington's one of them. He's um, he, he works tirelessly um, from the Liverpool County FA to bring people together, you know. Um, and it, this is partly his brainchild, uh, and he's done so much. For refugees in Liverpool with football and, and so on and you know the, the inclusion leagues the latest thing so you know we're made up to be involved because I think it's going to be a different kind of league um, to be involved in but um, I mean in terms of the book I'd love it if people would buy it because the money I'm giving to Asylum Link Merseyside and the reason that's important is because you know Asylum Link provides in Without asylum link, in the words of one of our refugees, without asylum link, people would sink because, you know, you've got no money, nowhere to go. And it's a place to go. You get food, you get clothes, um, you get things to do. You get linked into things like our football team. It's really, really important. So I'm giving um, the money to asylum link. So if people want to buy it. That's great because that's where the money will go. And it's you can get it from um, 29publishing.co.uk. Um, and the nine is the number nine, 29 publishing with uh, the nine is the number nine in 29. And um, you go onto the website and it's it's 9.99. And uh, I'd be delighted if people uh, would, wanted to read it. Um, there's two, you know, two reasons. You know, one is to kind of help people understand the, the, um, the lives of, of refugees and, and what football can do. And, and secondly, obviously the, the money raising aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, yeah, we'll 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 stick a link to that on on Twitter and in the in the bio as well, Chris. But yeah, I'll definitely be be buying that myself. Um, Brilliant, Chris. Thank Chris, you, thank you so much for for your time this evening, Chris. It's been you know 
it's 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 obviously not all a, a positive subject, but it's been really enjoyable speaking with you and uh, yeah, and, and and learning a little bit more about the team and about everything that you're doing. Thanks, Dan. It, it was a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation and for inviting us on. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care, mate. You take care, Dan. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. Huge, huge thanks to Chris for his time and for getting involved and for coming on the show and talking to us. It was a, a real pleasure, and I'm hoping that it was a pleasure for you to listen to as well. If you'd like to find out more about the Ullet Road Church Rebels Football Club, you can find them on Twitter. Their handle is at Ullet Rebels FC, and you can find Chris on Twitter as well, and his Twitter handle is at NowhereFan1. Um, Chris mentioned the uh, the book that he's written, which is about his time spent with the, the Ullet Road uh, Church Rebels Football Club, and also more broadly about refugees and refugee football in this country. That book is called Football Without Borders, The Lives and Times of a Refugee Football Club. You can find that on the website 29publishing.co.uk. That's 20, the word, and then 9, the number, publishing.co.uk. And you can find that book on there. I've bought it recently myself. We'll be looking forward to reading it, but I would thoroughly recommend you buy it. I'm sure you've been inspired by the, the stories that Chris told about the individuals that are playing in that team. So I would highly recommend ch- checking that out and, uh, and purchasing that book as well. Finally, then, to wrap up, I would just like to say thank you to, to all of the guests that we've had on this week in the Football Without Nothing, Football Without Everyone is Nothing series. It's been... Uh, it's been very interesting for me to speak to some incredible people, some amazing organisations who are using football as that vehicle to, you know, reduce social isolation, improve mental health, and and ultimately provide a platform for people who may well not have had the the normal sort of route into football that that everyone deserves. Because as we as we've said throughout the week, football is for everyone. We'll be back on man marking tomorrow with our usual episode on a Monday, our usual interviews, and that will be with Sheffield Wednesday footballer Sam Hutchinson. So we look forward to that. And then on Friday, we'll be having a little... Uh, in fact, actually, no, I'm lying to you. Our next show after that will be Wednesday. Earlier on in... Uh, in fact, late last year, we did some episodes where we did some predictions for all four of the divisions, all the top four divisions in the UK. So we're going to go through our predictions and a little bit of a review of the last season and then on Friday will be the first of a, uh, a series. I think I think there'll be five or six episodes. I can't remember exactly how many we're going to do, but there'll be an episode every Friday for the next five or six weeks where we'll be discussing the European Championships. And our interviews will continue on a Monday, so we'll be doing interviews on a Monday and those Euros episodes on a Friday. So we'll look forward to welcoming you to those. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for getting involved on Twitter. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>